0: Hi, everybody, I'm Maurice Merrick, and welcome to Horsepower Heritage. Greetings to all of you listening from places like Columbus, Ohio, Cocoa Beach, Florida, Culver City, California, Montreal, Quebec, Adelaide, Australia, and Tokyo, Hong Kong, Zurich, and Prague. Thanks for joining me, and don't forget to follow the podcast and please share it with a friend. Okay, so today I want to talk about something a little different. This one is all about cars we love to hate. I could probably do two hours on this topic, but I picked a few low points in automotive history, so we'll see how this goes. And if you want, you can send me your own picks on Instagram at HorsepowerHeritage. This hot lap is brought to you by Model Citizen Diecast. They sell collector-grade scale model cars. And when you shop online, just use the code HERITAGE at checkout and you'll get 10% off your order. That's a special deal for my listeners. Choose from models in either 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18th scale. That's like two feet long. Go to modelcitizendiecast.com and check out their great selection. Race cars, street cars, muscle cars, exotics, and more. Model Citizen DieCast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Okay, here we go. Cars we love to hate. Let's start with a car that is obscure outside the British Isles, and most Brits would probably think that's a good thing. And I'm talking about the Austin Allegro, built from 1973 to 1982. I'm eternally grateful that this one was never exported to the United States because the Allegro is a total eyesore. Not that we were doing much better at the time. Right now there's some guy in Scotland who's listening to this and he's like, Mate, who do you think you are? You got some nerve. Me non left me the Allegro. Don't worry, there's plenty of American cars I'm about to ridicule. Anyway, the story with the Allegro is that it was a replacement for the Morris 1100, a really popular economy car designed by Alec Issigonis, who of course is most famous for the Mini. But by the mid-1960s, the company that built the Mini and the 1100, British Motor Corporation was doing such a poor job managing their business that they were making just tiny margins on some models and actually losing money on others. And BMC was the General Motors of Britain, so this mess had a major impact on the whole economy. The answer to these troubles was a merger with Leyland Motors, a conglomerate that built all sorts of commercial vehicles like trucks and buses, as well as Triumph cars. Apparently they thought... We need to merge this weak company with this reasonably strong company, and maybe that will make a really, really strong company. And that's not what happened. But I guess it was one of those too-big-to-fail situations. So they called the resulting company British Leyland. So back to the Allegro. I mean, I guess we can't really expect much of an economy car, but it was a disaster from the start. The Allegro had rounded hatchback styling, but it wasn't a hatchback. This car was about as compelling as one of those plastic travel boxes for a bar of soap, or maybe an electric razor mating with another electric razor. It had front-wheel drive and the wheezy 20-year-old 1100cc four-banger under the hood. The steering wheel wasn't round. It wasn't square. It was sort of squound. They actually call those steering wheels quartic steering wheels. A little bit of a square and a little bit of round, like I said. And they weren't the first ones to use it, but it just didn't work. People hated it. They tried to change things and improve it, and they even made a fancy model called the Vanden Pla, which looks like a pint-sized Jaguar XJ that swallowed a 1,200-pound guinea pig. You'll be saddened to know that over 600,000 people eventually bought an Austin Allegro, and they've all regretted it ever since. Next up, we have a subcompact abomination called the Ford Pinto. The Pinto was spearheaded in 1967 by Lee Iacocca, who'd worked on the Mustang, among other projects, and we can also thank him for the later Chrysler minivans and the Chrysler K-Car. Iacocca warned that small import cars were soon going to eat Ford, Chrysler, and GM for breakfast, and he was right. I'm embarrassed to say that I've driven a Ford Pinto, but I'm proud to say I didn't own it. You sit down low with your legs stretched out like you're in a sunken living room, and you end up craning your neck to see out the windshield. And I'm not short, I'm six feet tall. The lovely 1970 seatbelt digs into your neck like a homemade knife after you've been taken hostage in a prison riot. Shifting gears is fun, the clutch is heavy, and the gear lever had the feel of a shovel stuck in freshly poured concrete. And the noises from the Pinto's four-cylinder are like a concrete mixer spinning away under the hood. The Pinto program was a rush job, and they had some factory recalls along the way, but most importantly, these cars will always be infamous for their alleged exploding gas tanks. Yes, if you got hit from behind, even at low speeds, the tank might rupture and ignite. The tank was mounted behind the rear axle, and it was supposedly inherently weak. And because the whole design was rushed, engineering changes that could have corrected the problem were deemed too expensive. In 1977, Mother Jones Magazine published a scathing article claiming that Ford's management had knowingly ignored the Pinto's design defects after they did a cost-benefit analysis and decided it was easier to pay out damages than fix the cars. As it turned out, though, collisions resulting in fires were a problem throughout the auto industry, but not a big one. Plenty of other cars had fuel tanks in that vulnerable location behind the rear axle. And the cost-benefit analysis study wasn't focused on the Pinto, or even Ford vehicles in particular, but on the industry as a whole. The study concluded that it would cost the industry about $137 million to modify fuel systems in all cars and trucks, while the potential cost to society for accidental death and injury was $49.5 million. In other words, it would cost $137 million to fix a $49 million problem. As callous as it sounds, that's how things are done, by government agencies, think tanks, manufacturers, the insurance industry, and on and on. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration did a study that found 27 fire deaths in Pintos over a six-year period. And that's out of two and a half million Pintos sold up to that point. But the whole situation got pretty ugly. Ford got really, really bad press and paid out millions in attorney's fees and personal injury claims. In the end, the Pinto sold over 3 million units in its 9-year production run, and it's likely that the low number of remaining Pintos has a lot to do with their reputation for bursting into flames, whether it's deserved or not. If there's a silver lining to the story, it's that progress on safety in automotive design was accelerated, and today it's rare for cars to catch fire in a collision. I could keep picking on Ford here, and yeah, in fact, let's just do that a little bit more, shall we? How about the Ford Mustang II? In response to the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, decided to punish the United States and other countries for supporting Israel in the conflict. So they cut oil production and announced an embargo, which led to a global spike in crude oil prices, like four times the going rate, widespread panic, fuel rationing, and long lines at the gas pumps. In the longer term, this triggered inflation and a major recession. The cost of a gallon of gasoline more than tripled between 1970 and 1980. At the same time, new emission regulations were severely affecting car design, and foreign imports were threatening to curb-stomp the U.S. automakers, who had laughed at brands like Toyota and Volkswagen in the 60s. Well, suddenly they weren't laughing. So you can imagine being a Detroit auto designer during the 70s wasn't the most inspiring occupation. And what we got were cars like the Mustang 2, which was based on, of course, the Pinto. The Mustang 2 looked like something a 10-year-old might draw after having a vague fever dream about the original Mustang. Or maybe like a police sketch of a getaway car, as described by an elderly man with cataracts. To be accurate, the Mustang 2 was already in the works before the oil crisis, and other automakers were making the same unpleasant but necessary changes, giving us cars like the Chevy Monza and the Pontiac Sunbird. Anyway, the Mustang II was awkward looking with poor performance and a lot of cheesy plastic parts. Ford tried to dress the car up with flashy graphics and body kits, but that just made it look more ridiculous. And yet they still sold a million of them. I mean, what are you going to do? Let's say you're 30 years old in 1975 and you've been driving a car with like 350 horsepower and room for six people, and all of a sudden it's costing you twice as much to operate that car. And you still think Toyotas are junk. Ford wouldn't sell junk, would they? So let's buy a Mustang, too. Well, guess what? By 1975, Ford, GM, and Chrysler were selling nothing but junk. And they almost couldn't help it. Everything they ever knew about building and selling cars had changed in just a few years. The government was telling them, you need to cut your emissions, you need to decrease your performance, and you need to come up with all this new technology to figure all this stuff out, and you need to do it now. Moving right along, let's talk about AMC. Which car is worse, the Pacer or the Gremlin? So hard to decide. Ah, well, the Gremlin came first in 1970, and it was based on the AMX GT show car, which was the car they should have built. The AMX GT was a shortened version of the Javelin muscle car. So the Javelin begat the AMX GT, which begat the Gremlin. But they tinkered with the Gremlin's proportions, and they took all the character out of the front end by substituting this tacked-on plastic assembly instead of strong sheet metal that the show car had. And they ruined what had been a clean and distinctive design. The weird rear quarter windows clash with the sail panel, which clashed with the cam tail of the car. And since it more or less began as a javelin that had been cut off in the rear, it always looked cut off and therefore unfinished. By the way, a gremlin is a mythical creature that sabotages airplanes. Somewhere between World War I and World War II, pilots came up with this folklore as a way to sort of explain away unforeseen problems in their planes. And during World War II, the idea of gremlins caught on among pilots in the Allied forces, thanks to children's author Roald Dahl, who was in the RAF himself. But why would you name a car after a mythical creature that sabotages machinery? The AMC Pacer arrived in 1975. Where the gremlin was angular and sharp, the Pacer was like a goldfish bowl on wheels. The proportions are completely distorted. Something like 30% of the body surface area was glass. A big passenger compartment with underdeveloped front end and short haunches. And also the design of parts like taillights, door handles, and trim pieces look cheap and goofy. But at least they put a decent straight six in both of these cars, and you can even order the Pacer with a V8. And the Gremlin outperformed its direct competitors with a small compromise in fuel economy, which is a great trade-off. And it earned a loyal fan base for being strong, reliable, easy to soup up, and cheap to fix. So if you've got to go ugly, go gremlin. And now I have a dishonorable mention. There are plenty of 70s Japanese imports that would qualify here, but I'm going to throw a Rotten Tomato at the Datsun B210. It came in a variety of body styles, but the two-door notchback sedan and the hatchback are especially awkward. They look top-heavy because of the massive amount of sheet metal above the wheel arches combined with relatively tiny 13-inch wheels. And we're talking about the first-generation B210 here, by the way. They kind of cleaned it up later. Anyway, if you chopped about 8 inches out of the upper third of the body, and then you enlarged the wheel wells and used 15-inch wheels instead of 13s, it would actually be a fairly decent-looking car. In any event, the B210 sold in big numbers because it arrived just in time for the gas crisis, and it got up to 50 miles per gallon which was at least double and, in some cases, almost triple any American car at the time. These days, the B210 is actually considered somewhat collectible, and I think the bizarre appearance is part of the charm for their fans. So what the hell do I know? Alright, if you grew up in the 80s, then you remember what a huge hit the Pontiac Fiero was. Almost 400,000 were sold from 1983 to 1988. The Fiero was an Italian-looking wedge with a four-cylinder mid-engine layout, rear-wheel drive, and pop-up headlights. It helped to re-establish Pontiac's traditional role as GM's sporty performance division. It was basically the poor man's Ferrari 308. So the average guy watching Magnum P.I. in 1985 could pretend he was Tom Selleck behind the wheel of his Fiero. And actually, a lot of them were converted into scaled-down, Ferrari 308 and Lamborghini Countach kit cars, which, by the way, are hideous. It wasn't a very reliable car, and they did have issues, including engine compartment fires. The engine they put in the Fiero was called the Iron Duke. It was a pushrod four-cylinder, and owners were just asking too much of it. And it wasn't a high-revving design, and it was only good for about 90 horsepower at 5,000 RPM. But the car was marketed as a sports car, so that's how people tried to use them. So, if you had an engine fire in your Fiero, blame Pontiac's marketing people, not the engineers. Eventually, the Fiero got a V6, but by that time, it was long in the tooth, and the stink of the 1980s was all over that car. And speaking of stink, how about that Cadillac Cimarron? Can't you just see it? Ah, yes, it was a badge-engineered Chevrolet Cavalier at an inflated sticker price, and it was doomed before the first car ever got sold. The press hated this thing, and nobody was fooled by the fake gold emblems and the padded vinyl tops. In fact, every GM division had their own version of this so-called J-body platform, and all of them were garbage. First of all, Cadillacs are supposed to have V8s, not four-bangers. Secondly, they're supposed to be roomy luxury cars, not flimsy little boxes. How would it look to the five families if you showed up to federal court in a Cimarron? Forget about it. Even your attorney would advise pleading guilty at that point. They shamelessly built the Cimarron for six long years, 1982 to 1988, with about 150,000 total built. Did you hear that? In six years, they only built 150,000. That's like getting rejected by every girl you've ever spoken to. And about the time Cadillac executives were getting mocked as the biggest posers in the car business, out of nowhere comes the Ford Taurus. I hate to pick on Ford again, so to be fair, the Taurus was the result of a huge self-examination inside the company. It was like group therapy in the boardroom, where Ford's management looked deep into the mirror and realized they had really screwed up their cars, and they were sorry, and they just needed to do better. Also, they had lost $3 billion in three years, so that may have had something to do with it. Anyway, the Taurus was a new direction. An all-new design approach, modernized manufacturing processes, and somewhat trend-setting styling. And it was a huge success, becoming the best-selling car in the United States. In fact, there was a time when you could throw a rock in any direction in this country and hit a Ford Taurus. Its supremacy was finally challenged and overcome by the Toyota Camry in 1997, as well as the Honda Accords. My complaint with the Taurus is not with the Taurus itself, but with the jelly bean styling trend that it started, because pretty soon every car looked like a warm stick of butter. Including, by the way, what, Aston Martin and Jaguar, which had both been purchased by Ford, and they screwed that up pretty good, but I digress. Next up on the wall of shame is the Honda Ridgeline. Honda decided that a unibody pickup was a good idea, even though Ford had experimented with a unibody F-100 in the early 60s and decided it was a bad idea. And the first generation Ridgeline had slanted bed rails, which are totally impractical if you want to haul anything oversized and lay it across the top of the bed. Why? Just why would you slant the bed rails? There's no practical reason for it. It's form over function. But the key to these mysteries is that Honda Focus grouped the Ridgeline. They're not making pickups for pickup people. They're making them for Honda people. And apparently Honda people are special people. People who don't tow, people who don't haul cargo except for once in a blue moon, soccer moms, and dentists with a gardening habit. It's a minivan with a bed. And there are more unibody pickups on the way in short order, including the Ford Maverick compact pickup and the Hyundai Santa Cruz. So again, what the hell do I know? Speaking of pickups, how about that Tesla Cybertruck? A lot of people hate it, and it has a lot of the same unconventional design characteristics of the Honda Ridgeline. But I don't hate the Cybertruck, I actually like it a lot. In fact, I want one myself. Tesla is claiming a 7,500 pound towing capacity, 250 mile range, and zero to 60 in 6.5 seconds. And it will have available all wheel drive. Plus, I think it really breaks the mold in every way but you can hate it if you want because i can't judge just keep hating it and last but not least on my list of cars we love to hate is the toyota that shall not be named but it begins with p and it ends with s it's the gas electric hybrid that made a millionaire of whoever came up with that coexist bumper sticker it's not a bad car it's not a failed car in fact it's just the opposite millions of people love it but it's like CrossFit or veganism, those who are into it want to convince you that the Toyota that shall not be named is the end-all, be-all, the way, the truth, and the life, the one car to rule them all. It's the antithesis of what car people love about cars. It's just an appliance. It's boring. Well, I, for one, will not go quietly into that good night. In fact, I think I would rather drive a Gremlin. A Gremlin. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. little goofing around this time. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you've heard, follow the podcast, and don't forget to click that five-star rating and leave me a review. All of those things will help me reach more gearheads like you. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merritt. Thanks for listening.